wish we had more championship seasons to discuss, and I wish we had more and more recently than 1990. But I, you know, that was kind of a formative moment in our fandom as a Cincinnati Reds fan, and uh, so I thought it'd be fun for you and I to uh, to reminisce a little bit. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great uh, a great memory for me. I mean, I, I was a senior in high school and a baseball player at the time, and you know, it was all coming together as far as I was concerned. And you know the Reds had uh, they had not done well in '89, but had four straight uh, second place seasons prior to that. And so you know they were kind of on the periphery of being a competitive team. And we just sort of thought, you know, after this uh, after the 1990 season, hey, this is what it's going to be like forever, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Was, <laughs> here we roll. That's right. 1989, you may remember, was the year that uh, Pete Rose was banned from baseball, and and Tommy Helms came on to be the interim manager for the rest of the season, and it ended just kind of ignominiously. And then in October of 1989, Murray Cook was fired as general manager, and the Reds brought on Bob Quinn. Bob Quinn, of course, had worked for George Steinbrenner. And not to uh, not to stop with the Yankees comparisons, a couple of weeks after that, Lou Pinella was hired to be the Reds' manager, replacing uh, Helms, who, again, was the interim manager. So... Uh, you know, at the time you're thinking, well, this is a way different, uh, different uh, direction for the Reds. But I'm not sure any of us expected what was getting ready to come. Did you? Well, no. I mean, it was it was the whole thing was you know '89 was such a just a shattered and lost season. That's also the year that Barry Larkin, I think, the year Barry Larkin hurt his elbow in the All Star Game Skills Competition and missed you know the better half of the the second half of the year and. And, you know, with everything just shattered out, I don't know. They, they had all the young talent that had been coming together in 86, 87, 88. But I don't know what we expected starting into 90. Certainly not what we got. And uh, it, it, other things happened that offseason as well that I was really – one of these moves in particular, uh, one of them I didn't really care about. But one of them I was pretty upset about. And that was uh, happened in uh, early December, December 6th, when the Reds acquired Randy Myers and Kip Gross, the immortal Kip Gross. Uh, Randy Myers would go on to uh, have a pretty good season. We'll talk more about him in a moment. But to get him, they traded uh, John Franco and Don Brown. Now, uh, a, l- a lot of people, I feel like, maybe you have a different sense, but I feel like John Franco's kind of a forgotten man in Cincinnati. And he was really, really good. One of the best uh, relievers in the league during his six years here, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was probably on a team with a lot of future stars or, or would-be stars. He was the main guy. He was the guy who'd actually done it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was a three-time All-Star with Cincinnati. He, uh, two point, uh, let's see here, I had it pulled up, 2.97 ERA over six seasons. Um, he had, uh, gosh, 148 saves during that time. I'm just on an elite pitch, and I was like, why are we Why are we trading John Franco, you know, the, the diminutive lefty who was 28 years old at the time he was traded? It just kind of blew my mind for for who? Randy Myers? I mean, I knew yeah, Randy well, Myers was good, but this is not, he's not John Franco. Yeah, and I don't think we'd been paying attention. I mean, I, you know, I remembered him as kind of like one of the extra guys that came into the Mets in, what was it, 88? I think they were in the playoffs. So, yeah. yeah. And he was kind of one of their, he was a good pitcher for them, but, you know, I didn't know anything about him. Right. Well, he was a lefty. He was going to be 27 in the 1990 season and you know had been pretty good he was coming off a year where he had a 2.35 ERA and 24 saves 26 saves the year before with a 1.72 ERA so a good good pitcher but i don't know John, this is one of the early 
you know, uh, the Reds traded away one of our guys. And, it, you know, why would they trade away one of our guys? And as it turned out, it worked out pretty well. Well, and I, I guarantee, well, I don't know, maybe I would have known more about strikeout rates and stuff, but I would have definitely been saying we traded our left-handed closer for a left-handed closer. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what it looked like. I guess a uh, slightly younger and way more volatile left-handed closer. Uh, yeah. Of course, Franco goes on to the Mets and has a, a great career. But uh, again, this is we're going to diverge a little bit as we reminisce about some of this team. And uh, he wasn't on the 1990 team, but is it is it? As big a disgrace as I think it is that uh, John Franco's not in the Reds Hall of Fame. Seems like he should be in the Reds Hall of Fame, doesn't it? Yeah, I probably would have said he was. I don't I, think so. Well, maybe he'll get in after Dave Collins. <laughs> maybe so. Or maybe after Kip Gross. <laughs> uh, six days later, the Reds traded a couple of uh, other immortals, Tim Leary and Van Snyder, to the Yankees. Van Snyder, I don't know if he came up in our podcast a, a while back when we did the obscure former Reds, but uh, he should have. He really should have. That's a, uh, yeah, that's a guy. I feel like I remember him from the, like being in the, you know, in AAA for quite a long time. Right. Coming back the other way, of course, was a guy about to have his rookie season in the big leagues, Hal Morris, left-handed hitting first baseman. Um, and of course, Morris would go on to be one of the keys to the World Series team. So got to say that uh, that was a win for the Reds, that transaction. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, when you already have Todd Benzinger at first base, <laughs> who says you need to improve. We're going to have to talk about Todd Benzinger, aren't we? I That's think this whole podcast is about Todd Benzinger. <laughs> oh, no, that could be that could be a disaster. So 1990 and uh, the, the year 1990, the calendar year begins by Joe Morgan being elected to the Hall of Fame, uh, the Major League Hall of Fame. and uh, But then pretty quickly, the owners locked the players out of spring training. You remember that? Yeah, that's what I, I think that's why I didn't have, I don't remember having any kind of like firm expectations about what the season was going to be like because you didn't get a chance to see, you know, Pinello or any of the, any of the new players. You didn't get to see like what the team was going to look like for quite some time. And it was kind of rushed at the end. It was, I mean, the, the lockout and it again is because of a lack of progress during negotiations for a new collective bargaining agreement, but it wasn't resolved until March 18th. So, of course, the season didn't start on time. And, uh, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it was just a, kind of, everything was kind of up in the air to start the season. It was really a strange time to be a Reds fan coming off that. Just really, it was a, just a heartbreaking season in a lot of ways. Um, and then uh, for this to happen. So that's why the start was such a, uh, a surprise and so pleasant. Now, in the meantime, they had to push back opening day, obviously which meant the Reds had to start on the road. We'll talk about that in a second. But in the meantime, the Reds made another transaction on April 3rd that ended up paying huge dividends down the stretch. Traded Mike Ressler and Jeff Richardson to the Pirates for one Billy Hatcher. Another another really good trade. Yeah, wow, that's a great pickup. Yeah, and that close to the beginning of the season. I mean, it was just a, a guy that ended up being, you know, one of the stars of the uh, the playoff run. So the opening game was not until April 9th. And the Reds opened on the road for the first time since 1966. Maybe we should have known that uh, something like that was going to happen. And so something special was ahead of us, I guess. Maybe. Could be. Reds won that game 8-4 to four in 11 innings over the Astros uh, in Houston. So, um, 1-0. Undefeated. 
a chance to go 162-0, and we were saying. That's right. And then we said that for a few more days. You know, if Twitter were around back then, <laughs> we always make those dumb jokes at the beginning of every year, except for this year when the Reds started the season 0-40. Um, <laughs> approximately, you know, we make those dumb jokes. Can't win them all if you don't win the first one. Yeah. Man, I would have been insufferable for, you know, two weeks with this team. So um, I still don't remember at that time. And I'm like you. I was in high school, so we were teenagers at the time. And um, – Huge Reds fans. I was certainly uh, following every day, but I don't remember. And again, this is a long time ago, so I just don't remember being particularly excited about Reds baseball at that point. And of course, you're in high school; you got other things you're more interested in, I suppose. But um, I was a geek, so I was still really, <laughs> really into Reds baseball. But um, one win wasn't going to do it. Um, the next game, the Reds scored seven runs in the ninth inning. Yeah, well, not the next game, but later in that week. Seven runs in the ninth inning to beat the Braves, 13-6. Uh, to six. That was on Easter Sunday. And then finally had their first home game. 2-1 win over the Padres before a crowd of uh, 38,384. Uh, that, that's a classic Marge shot. It was a Tuesday night. I looked it up. <laughs> and Marge shot changed it to a 2.30 start just so they could have all their opening day festivities. <laughs> now, did you have that day off? Did you go to opening day? No, I, I think I was probably – playing a baseball game that afternoon. I mean, this is like, I think that's why I don't remember any of this in the, the first month, because that was like the prime of high school baseball season. And I was struggling to hit myself. Yeah. By that time, our, our high school coach had uh, made a convincing case that I should go out for the tennis. Game. <laughs> and so I was in the middle of my tennis season. Um, you know, he made a, it's the same guy that uh, was my government teacher and convinced me to go to law school. Uh, because mm-hmm. we, cause we used to argue all the time. I couldn't argue him off the position that I had no business being <laughs> on the baseball team. That's all I wanted to do. Um, so, yeah, Marge Shot. you have any thoughts about Marge Shot? Well, is, you know, it's uh, I, I've repressed them all. I know I think you and I had a conversation when we were writing the book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Cincinnati Reds, about how to treat Marge Shot in that book. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we ultimately decided not to. I think you're right. Yeah, we tried to yeah. avoid the topic as much as possible. I think. I mean, she's obviously an important part of the of the team's history. But if you're trying to attribute the you know uh, attribute to the franchise and the best of the best, well, that's not her. So yeah, she she was. I re- I mean, I was embarrassed by her. I was embarrassed for her, and I even at that age could tell she was not a nice cuddly grandma who said weird things. <laughs> she was just kind of a warped person, I think. Yeah. I don't know that I knew that at this point. I think that it wasn't until after the season, the Eric Davis episode that we'll talk about that. I really realized um, we got a problem uh, here. And then of course it, we'd found out much more. I'm not sure at that point that I really knew. I thought, I think she was, I thought she was sort of a, a harmless uh, old lady who liked to rub her dog's, uh, uh, hair on Lupinella's chest and was just, I don't know, I, I, harmless, I guess, at that point. Um, and, of course, we don't have we didn't have 24-7 uh, coverage uh, like we have these days, so uh, we would have found out a lot earlier, I guess. But, uh, I don't know, at that time, the stuff about uh, Shotzi, that dog, and, yeah, it was just, I was all like, well, it's kind of embarrassing, you know, make you cringe a little bit, but, eh, harmless. Yeah, now, nowadays Marge would have been canceled. <laughs> she would she would have been canceled. As a matter of fact, that might have been the best thing for everyone involved. I'm not I'm not for the cancel culture, in the, but uh, yikes, she was just, she would not survive. And of course, she didn't even back then. Uh, eventually, 
her uh, yeah her act of war thin. Now April eighteenth, I thought this was a fun story, and, and we're going through. There's this book, uh, Red Leg Journal. And if you've not read Red Leg Journal, well, it's a huge book, but it's uh, year by year and day by day with the Cincinnati Reds since 1866. Our buddy Greg Rhodes, along with John Snyder, I don't think it's still in uh, uh, in print. Um, the the last I remember, they had a, several copies at the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum gift shop. What do you? Are there any other books worth purchasing at that gift shop? The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Cincinnati Reds. I love that Triumph book. Books, yeah. And if everybody who's listening to this Patreon podcast has not already bought one of those books, I'm going to get highly upset. Well, here's the thing. Christmas and Hanukkah are coming soon. The season of giving. Oh, man. And what a better gift uh, for someone, uh, someone, uh, a loved one in your... If your you family. have a, a Reds fan in your life, they would love to read it. If you have someone who's not a Reds fan... What better way to make them a Reds fan by sharing the men and the men and moments that made the Cincinnati Reds? It's just a glorious, glorious book. April eighteenth. So anyway, we're using the Red Leg Journal. If you, you find out, if you're a big Reds fan, you really ought to get get your hands on a copy of it on eBay or something somewhere, or at the Hall of Fame if they still have it. But it's fantastic. I'm using that as kind of a guide to go through the entire season. Um, and and I like this little note that they have here that on April eighteenth, San Diego's manager, one Jack McKeon. Objected to Rob Dibble's uniform shirt during the seventh inning of an eleven seven Reds win at Riverfront Stadium. You, do you remember how Dibble used to like cut the I sleeves of his uniform? Yeah, uh, it, yeah, they just had him flopping around. <laughs> right, it was a distraction to the hitters, said McKeon, playing his mind games as usual. Um, but what I didn't remember was that Dibble pitched the last two and a third innings of shutout relief of that game, wearing uh, pitching coach Stan Williams's number thirty five uniform. There you go. <laughs> That's great. So, and little we know that Jack McKean will become a, you know, a, a kind of beloved figure for a little while in Cincinnati. So April twenty first, the Reds are nine and zero, and they, they had to be in first place, right? I would imagine that's the best in the division. Ah, yes, they were four games up after nine games in the division. That's uh, pretty impressive. Eight one victory over the Braves. So, um, best start in club history. 1980 team had started 8-0, uh, one of those uh, what-might-have-been teams uh, in 1980. Well, you know what's another a great story about that day? Um, and, and I'm also looking at Red Lake Journal, but I'm also looking at the wire-to-wire Reds. Sweet Lou, nasty, the Nasty Boys in the Wild Run to a World Championship by our good friends John Arardi and Joel Luckup. And uh, when, they, when they hit 9-0, the players started talking about what they would do when – when they got to 10 and 0, 11 and 0, and how far down the line it would be before um, they'd have to do something fun. And the as it did a few years later, they started talking about shaving heads. And the consensus at the time was that it would take a 15 game uh, a 15 game winning streak for uh, Lou Pinella to shave his head. But uh, Tom Browning was willing to risk divorce and shave his <laughs> right. at, at ten and zero. Yeah, of course Tom Browning took the loss, <laughs> first loss of the season <laughs> that next day uh, in a battle of lefties against a uh, young Tom Glavin for Hotlanta. So um, now there's a note here, and uh, again I want to use this as an aside for some memories of some of these players because th- these players are all are almost universally uh, special to you and I and those in, uh, of our generation, but. Who led the Reds in hitting that April? 409 batting average. I have not looked this up. My guess 
Mariano Duncan. Mariano Duncan. Wow. You're right. And he ended up having a really good right? year. You are hey. right. Yeah, Mariano Duncan. I, I remember he was really good right when they got him. Yeah, yeah. And he ended up the season you know, with a 306 average, 345 on base, uh, you know, 120 OPS plus. He ended up having a pretty good season. Um, oh, I got to correct myself. I guess they got him They got him the season before in the middle of the year. That's right. Yeah, so, well, he was good in April for the Reds in 1990. So um, May 10th, score eight runs in the, in the eighth inning to break a 2-2 to tie to beat the Pirates in Pittsburgh. Always good to beat the Pirates in Pittsburgh. Anybody get beaned? I don't think anybody got beamed there, but I'm sure Clint Hurdle was upset about something at the time. I don't know what he was doing in 1990, but um, Clint so, Hurdle. Clint Hurdle. Yeah, look up. You'd be looking up, do some crack research on what Clint Hurdle was doing in 1990. While well, I mentioned that uh, the Pirates are going to uh, feature prominently later in this podcast, little uh, little preview there of the uh, of the postseason, Chris. Clint Hurdle was managing the Jackson Mets, which. I don't know where that is. It's in the Texas League, but I don't know what part of the country it actually is. Jackson, Mississippi, perhaps? I don't know. I guess, but he re- managed him to a 73-62 and 62 record. I wish that you were able to uh, access the numbers of uh, hit batters from his pitching staff. Uh, it, I've got it. Oh, really? Was it 40, like- 43 hit by pitch, his staff... Uh, including a young Pete Shorick who led the club with eight hit by pitch. Well, so, uh, I'm going to assume that that was a lot for that league. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, May 13, Joe Oliver drove in six runs to lead the Reds to a 13 to nine win over the Cubs at Riverfront stadium. Also into the podcast, Joe Oliver. Thank you very much. I was, I was going to mention that. Yeah. Joe Oliver, of course, uh, he had a three run homer and a bases loaded double in that game. He's also going to feature prominently later. Uh, what do we think about Joe Oliver's, career as a Cincinnati Red. I mean, you know, he never was a hitter. No, I mean, I have nothing but, but good thoughts about Joe Oliver, um, primarily because he was on this team. I mean, I think if you, if you go back and try to be analytic about it, I don't know. I don't know. He was a number one pick, right? Oh, I'm not sure he was a number one. Was he? I don't Second know. Round. Could be wrong. Second, Second round. Second round. 83. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, he played here eight years. And was the primary starter for most of that time, I guess. I don't know. I, he was just kind of a guy that was around, and it was a, featured prominently in one big, uh, one big moment, and uh, left and came back. I don't know. I just, I, I had fond memories of Joe Oliver, even though I knew way back then. I didn't really realize it about Todd Benzinger at the time, but about Joe Oliver, <laughs> I knew the guy couldn't hit. I just assumed he was a good defensive player and uh, and a, a good guy, and uh, that, that was before he came on the podcast and. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it'd be interesting to find, you know, these days with the catcher's metrics are so advanced and so some ways counterintuitive to what, you know, you're, who has a reputation of being a good catcher defensively versus who the numbers show. I, I have no idea. I mean, Joe Oliver didn't have a particularly great reputation as far as being a gold Glover type guy, but uh, who knows? Maybe the, the numbers would say he was the best catcher in the league. Yeah. Um, 1990 was his second best season by wins above replacement with one win above replacement. Wow. His best season was two years later in 92 with a 1.5 wins above replacement and never was above one. He got, he got up to one in uh, 2000, the year 2000 playing for Seattle. So last, uh, when I talked to Joe Oliver uh, last year, the year before, whenever it was, he was managing in the Red Sox organization. I believe he still is managing in the Red Sox organization. So, um, 
again, more on him in uh, one of the, maybe the most fun moment of the season before the final pitch. Um, let's see. What's, what else do we want to talk about? Uh, how about June the 3rd? Let's get all the way to June, okay? Tom Browning and Randy Myers combined to beat the Dodgers 2 to nothing in L.A. That win at the time, on June the 3rd, gave the Reds a 33-12 and record and already a 10-game lead in the National League Western Division. And at that time, you know, we're all thinking, everyone's excited at that point, 10-game lead already? Uh, they're going to end up running away with this thing. And that was kind of the high watermark right there. Um, do you remember, as we start to get into it, how, much, how that slog felt the rest of the season? I Yeah, I just remember, yeah, I remember it being a lot of, you know, you were never worried that they were going to lose the division, I didn't think. But gosh, you I was worried about how they were going to play in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. The Giants got within three and a half games in August. The Dodgers got within three and a half in September. So it was never closer than three and a half the rest of the way. So you really were never really afraid. But we were at a point here where the Reds are ten games up, thirty three and twelve. We're thinking this team is this is this is one of the best teams in the league. And then they scuffled for so long. I had that same thought. I was like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to expect in the postseason. I mean, they may just be just a just a team, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the big reasons it's a guy who who you know, forgive me if you're already going to get him later, but a guy who turned out to be not important at all but was really, really dominant for the first two and a half months of the season was Jack Armstrong. The All-American boy. I mean, he was really pitching well. I mean, what he went into the All-Star break with a 2.28 ERA. He'd 11 thrown and, a... 11-3 record at the time, too. Yeah, 11-3 record. He'd thrown like 115 innings already. I mean, he was really, you know, pitching well, pitching a lot, and just dominating. And I think that had to be a big part of, you know, how they were, how they were playing. Uh, and, and their, their great record was him just completely just wiping everybody out. I mean, I think they, they won two out of the other three games. He didn't have a decision in. So, I mean, he only, they only lost four games when he was on the field. Think about that pitching staff. When, uh, during that first half of the season, you had Jose Rio, who was an ace. I mean, he just was one of the best pitchers in the history of the Cincinnati Reds. Um, you had Danny Jackson, who had finished second in the Cy Young voting two years before, if you remember losing to, to Oral Hershiser. You yep. had uh, Tom Browning, who was, you know, Tom Browning, but, you know, a, a, a good pitcher. And then you had Jack Armstrong, who was the starter in the All-Star game midway through the season. I mean, that's a that's an awfully good uh, rotation. Who else am I forgetting in that rotation? Uh those were the well. That that might have been the main. Was, well, Norm Charlton and Norm right. Charlton started about half the games, and yep. then then you had Rick Mailer and Scott Scudder and a couple other guys picking up pieces here. Rick Mailer and Scott Scudder, yes, outstanding. Right, so four man rotation. I guess that's what I was uh, forgetting is that that was your four primary uh, starters. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and Browning. Just to go back to him a minute. I mean, in the first half, he had a. a 2.74 ERA himself and and through just a ton of innings too. He threw 125 innings. So those guys, you know, they had a great bullpen, but they didn't have to lean on them that heavily. 
Well, again, the 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 word was, and we'll talk about the nasty boys was, you know, just got to get it to the sixth inning, and those guys will take it home. And and you had a bunch of guys that could get it to the sixth inning on, on a regular basis through a lot of innings, um, and through a lot of good innings. So, Jack Armstrong, one of the, uh, you know, I don't know what the deal was. Eleven wins at the All Star break, only had twenty three wins the rest of his career. I mean, you know, uh, wins. What, what's that as a stat? But, but but at that time, he was as good as anyone. In the league, wasn't he? I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, it's it's crazy. What I don't remember, and maybe you do, did did he get hurt or did they just kind of say, look, this guy's stinking it up? Because he only pitched maybe four or five innings after Labor Day. Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I don't remember him getting hurt that year. But again, we're working on faulty memory at this point. Gosh, he's yeah. 25 years old. and I mean, this is you talk about being on top of the world. 25 years old and starting the All-Star game. And at that time, you'd have to say, you know, the Reds have 25-year-old Jose Rio as well. Wow, we're you know, we're in good shape. Man, that's a why. Why wasn't he in the book? <laughs> it would wanna, have been a half page. I, I just want to know more about what happened there. Uh, I need yeah. a book about that. So before we get to the All Star game, there is a uh, kind of important game that I want to mention. It was June 24th, and it was the first time the Reds played a night game on Sunday. Oh, this is a great one. This one I really remember. Yes, and because it was on ESPN, I guess. And yeah, it's the first first time they played on the the then new uh, Sunday Night Baseball. Yeah, yeah. So it was a big deal anyway. The Reds were first place. They're playing against the Dodgers, who were you know uh, trying to chase them, and uh, the Reds won ten to six. But of course, none of that is remembered as well as what happened in the seventh inning when Norm Charlton wearing his warm up jacket. Scored from first base on a double, ran right through third base coach Sam Perlazzo's stop sign, and just demolished Dodger catcher Mike Sosha. Oh man, do, do you remember? I remember jumping up when that happened. I, I was so excited. That. Yeah, because you know it was it was midsummer, so it was still daylight out, and I was I completely remember sitting in at my parents' house and just jumping up and screaming, and my brother comes running in. What happened? That was fantastic. That was great, and, and you've all seen that clip a hundred times. If you haven't, go to YouTube and watch it. Uh, you will never see anything like that again. But uh, yeah, well, there, there's some fun. There's some fun backstory on that too. Is that apparently? So you know, so Ch- Charlton basically says, "Look, I'm not going to slide into Mike Sosha, who is you know what two thirty, two hundred forty pounds. He's like, I got to try to knock him down, or I'm in, he's going to kill me. But apparently, half the rest of the Reds team." had been killed by Sosha at one point or another. So, you know, Herm Winningham is always good for a good story. He says, you know, basically, he'd gotten in a rundown with Sosha at one point earlier in his career, and uh, and Sosha tagged him, like, basically punched him in the lip to tag him, and Herm apparently had a grudge against Sosha from then on and uh, and plowed into Sosha one time, a few weeks later in whatever season that was. And and Sosha gets knocked out and is laying at the plate. And Herm basically staggers into the dugout, sits down, decides that's not good enough, goes in the in the clubhouse and lays down and basically passes out himself. <laughs> oh, give me all your Herm Winningham anecdotes. Love them. Well, that's the book we need. Yeah, really, the Herm Winningham story. Um, so that's a, that was a fantastic one. And, and I do want to talk about uh, Charlton briefly, because we we're going to have to touch on all the nasty boys at some point. And Charlton's kind of, kind of the uh, 
undersung member of the Nasty Boys. But what people really don't remember, because he was part of that group, he started 16 games that year. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. he was kind of a swing player and a really effective one. I mean, you know, uh, 2.74 ERA that season, 146 ERA plus. I mean, he was a really good pitcher that year. Yeah, he was a good pitcher and a really interesting and kind of fun guy to have around, I think, too. Here's your trivia question, uh, Chris Garber. Uh, we all know, we've heard it a million times, that Charlton graduated from Rice University with a triple major. Can you name those three majors? Oh, boy. I already am one for one tonight. Uh, I believe one of them was, was some sort of religion, a divinity or something like that. That's correct. Uh, I'm going to say... What would you expect an athlete to major in? Uh, exercise. Physical physiology. education. Yeah, physical okay. education. And the next one would be communications. Political science. Oh, all right. Good Political for Norm. Science. Good for Norm Charlton. Now, I, we skipped uh, over it, but I do want to go back because we talked about the trades earlier. And, and three big trades to get Hal Morris, to get uh, uh, Randy Myers, and to get Billy Hatcher. Mid-season, the Reds had a really a trade that I'm not sure anyone expected to be as big as it was. But June 9th, the Reds traded Ron Robinson. Everybody loved big Ron Robinson. And Bob Sebra to the Brewers for... Glenn Braggs and Billy Bates, both of whom figure uh, prominently in the Reds' postseason story, right? Yeah, absolutely. That was a weird one, too. That was a really weird trade. I mean, Glenn Braggs was, you know, he was fine, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what you thought about Glenn Braggs at the time. He was kind of a fourth um, outfielder type. Uh, yeah, that's a good way to describe him. And you think, well, where is he going to play? Because you know, Hatcher and, and uh, Eric Davis and, and Paul O'Neill. Paul, right, and you thought, well, that's kind of a weird move to get this. Are they going to try to platoon Paul O'Neill? Because Paul O'Neill was always, you know, but he he was really good and really talented. But there was just it always felt like there was kind of a disconnect between yeah. the front office and Paul O'Neill. Like they just never seemed to be happy with what he was giving them. Yeah, never trusted him. Yeah, yeah, they never just relaxed and let him have the job. You know, Ron Robinson was just 28 at that time, and uh, I don't know, I, maybe it's because I was a kid, and, you know, he was a big, goofy, red-headed uh, guy who <laughs> flirted with a couple perfect games. I don't know, I, I just, I like Ron Robinson, so I was a little surprised to see them deal him, um, but he'd only appeared in six games. Yeah, that's a guy that, that he was a number one pick of the Reds, and uh, had really pitched pretty well all the time they'd brought him up. Yeah, yeah. But another thing, they just never really, never really fit in their plans, I guess. Another trivia question. You may uh, you may have already seen this in your uh, your research before we started here, but we already talked about one of the players that made the All Star team for the Reds. Played in Wrigley Field in 1990. Who were the other four? There were five total All Stars for the Reds. Can you name all five? Oh no! And I, I, there was a picture in this book, and I I'm not going to turn back. So five, <laughs> counting Jack Armstrong. Counting Jack Armstrong. Uh, I'm going to say Larkin, Barry Larkin, Eric Davis. Eric Davis did not make it. Oh, boy. I know, right? Eric, uh, Davis, Eric Davis should be on every All-Star team, even after he retired. I think uh, Myers and Dibble made it. Randy Myers and Rob Dibble, both, yes. And then one more. Uh, Sabo? Chris Sabo. Ah, Chris Sabo. I love me some Chris Sabo back in the day. <clears throat> Do you know that for one year on junior varsity basketball, I wore Rex Specs? I, I did not know that, but I'm not surprised to hear that. <laughs> I want to look like Sabo. <laughs> if you got to pick one professional athlete to look like, would Sabo be the last yeah, one to right, choose? Right. I mean, yeah. That's right. That's right. 
Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you, are you a, a, a Glenn Braggs follower on Instagram by any chance? No, no, I bet I, I'm going to be. Uh, you need to be. Well, no, don't because he's going to make you. He's you know, older than both of us by uh, a long shot, and uh, probably ten years at least older than Nietzsche. See, uh, yeah, probably almost exactly ten years, uh, or maybe more older than us. And he posts pictures occasionally, and he looks like he could still play. Oh and, come on! I'm looking at these pictures right now. <laughs> it's very intimidating. Yeah, that doesn't even look real. <laughs> no, you, maybe it's not. Maybe it's Photoshop. No, it's very impressive. Uh, Glenn Braggs, good job. I'll right, more on him later. Um, into the second half, the Reds begin that kind of long, slow slog to the to the postseason. Uh, Eric Davis hit a sixth inning grand slam off Zane Smith, the immortal lefty Zane Smith, in on July sixteenth to win a game against the Expos at Riverfront Stadium. Uh, you know, I'm, I need to look back. I may have been at that game. It, because the Zane Smith game, the Zane Smith Eric Davis grand slam game. Because what I remember of it is before the game, they're playing the Montreal Expos. Uh, uh, do you know which country Montreal is currently located in? Canada. Canada. And uh, in front of me were, at the time, three of the drunkest <laughs> college students I'd ever seen in my life. And they sang the Canadian National Anthem with such vigor. It was <laughs> it was frankly inspiring. And I've never forgotten it to this day. So uh, that's what I, th- I think it might have been that game. It was sometime uh, that season. All right, so again, we're kind of you know scuffling the rest of the way. July thirtieth, the Reds <laughs> had lost eight straight games. Now, look, this is one of our favorite teams, a classic team in Reds history, and they lost eight games. That's proof positive that you know things happen during a season, and you know uh, every good team even can have a, a stretch. But to try to change the team's luck during that eight-game losing streak, Ron Oster shaved his head and tried to persuade other teammates to join him. <laughs> And no one, no one would join him. And the joke ended up being on Oster. It never grew back. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. That's when they went. That was when they went to the West Coast, right? Yes, yes, and, yes. And you know the bit of trivia about that road trip, right? I'm not so sure what, I do. Well, speaking of national anthems, one of those games in that the Reds lost in San Diego uh, was the infamous Roseanne Barr sings the national anthem night? Is that right? Where she grabbed yes. her, uh, grabbed her, she grabbed her bars, and then, and spit on the ground. Oh man, yeah. And and uh, and Marty Brenneman's reaction was to say she ought to be put into jail. <laughs> that seems like an overreaction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uncouth, but come on, yeah. <laughs> incarceration. I, I, it seems. Well, you, you would know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know. At the time, I probably would have agreed with him. So it's fortunate that I, they didn't give me a robe until many right. years later. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they. Off she goes. <laughs> when uh, Ron Oster shaved his head, yeah, they just come off losing uh, three to the Padres, three or four straight to the Giants, two of which were walk-off losses. Yikes! And then uh, had lost to the Dodgers. But see, the joke there though was it worked. They beat the Dodgers the next day, and uh, and broke the uh, broke the losing streak. Yeah, there you go. This is strange. And I'm just looking at the uh, the schedule and the results for the, the Reds on uh, 1990 Reds on Baseball Reference. And so they lost f- three to the Padres, three out of four, but they lost the last three of that series. They lost four to the Giants. They lost one to the Dodgers, then beat the Dodgers the next day, and then lost on Wednesday at the Padres. Or they beat the Padres the next day at, at San Diego. And came home and lost three to the Padres at Riverfront. 
That's weird. A one-game series must have been a makeup game. Must have been. Uh, it, it says there's old Noah here. It was a, it was a makeup game because of the strike. They were making up some of those strike games. Oh, interesting. So they went to San Diego, to San Francisco, to LA, back to San Diego for one, and then both teams flew to Cincinnati. Hmm. Yeah. I, I didn't remember that. Uh, August eighth, big day. Pete Rose checked into minimum security prison. That's right. Marion, Illinois. Conviction for income tax evasion. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you a little story? Uh, just today in the mail at my home, I received a uh, a Pete Rose jersey. Really? Do you, do you want to know more? Please? <laughs> yeah, there's got to be more to that story. I have a 92-year-old grandmother. She was born the year of the Murderer's Road Yankees. She is wonderful. And she, a little Italian lady, Tumalo was her maiden name. She uh, married a Kentucky boy and became a Reds fan many, many years ago. And she is unaware or doesn't care about Pete Rose's many uh, flaws <laughs> as a human. And so she's at this uh, long-term care facility where they take great care of and she loves it and she's doing great. She runs the place. She's just uh, the best. But anyway, uh, they have a, you know costumes for Halloween every year, and this year she wanted to be Pete Rose. <laughs> and I think I told you some stories. Every time I'd go visit her, you know, she wanted to talk about something different in the Big yeah. 50. You know, she read it three times. I mean, just uh, she's the best. But uh, So anyway, I, I, she wanted to be Pete Rose, so I bought her a Pete Rose uniform. So, oh, this is great. Yeah. So there are going to be some pictures of this 92-year-old lady <laughs> wearing uh, – Pete Rose jersey and my, one of my son's old, uh, you know, uh, uniform pants. Uh, it's going to be stirrups. We've got some stirrups. It's going to be great. Oh, that's going to be great. So anyway, uh, <laughs> mid-August, your guy Herm Winningham. Yes. Tied a major, modern major league record with three triples in a win over the Cardinals. Um, he also doubled that game. Wow. Good game for Herm Winningham. <laughs> well, I love that game because that's the game where Herm Winningham Said that he should have had four triples, but but he just he got tired and turned around, and went back to second base. Said said to stop. Uh, first, well, I told you I told you the last time we talked about these guys that Herm Winningham was a known smoker. Ah, so maybe that was so, the reason that I think that's what it was. He was oh, gas. Could be, could be. I I can see that. Um, I couldn't get one triple without getting gassed. I'd be done. Mm -hmm. Um, six days later, Billy Hatcher tied a major league record with four doubles. And an 8-1 win over the Cubs. Now, I know you remember that game. That I don't remember. No, you remember that game. I do? Oh, you absolutely remember that game. What else happened that day? In the fifth inning, Lou Pinella oh, had a, I remember this now, yeah. <laughs> he had a conversation with first base umpire Dutch Renner. <laughs> <laughs> and you recall what he did, right? Yeah, he uh, he moved some equipment around. Yeah, he picked up first base and threw it in the outfield. And they went and got and it and threw it again. Oh man, that's that, that's when I decided Lou Pinella could be manager in Cincinnati forever. Oh, that was great. If, that was fantastic. If Brian Price had just thrown a base, do you think he'd be more beloved in Cincinnati? Uh I can't imagine Brian Price throwing a base. I can't imagine I mean, Brian thought, Price being more beloved than he already is. <laughs> no, I can't not. imagine Brian Price throwing away like a paper cup. All right, uh, he can chew out Trent Rosecrans though. Um, How does that get the Reds? Yeah, does that help? August 24th, this one affected me at the time, big time. Uh, the Reds released Ken Griffey Sr. And uh, 
that affected me because I don't know, King Griffey was one of the few remaining, the only remaining link, I guess, to the big red machine. He and Concepcion had kind of been around, you know, during the time when I was becoming a big fan. Pete Rose came back during that time as well. But uh, I was like, what are you doing? We're in first place. This guy was in the big red machine. He's got a chance to get a ring with with this team, and, and they released him. Were you as upset as I was at that time? I was really disappointed by it. But, I mean, I, I think we also knew that he was kind of – he was kind of out of gas and they were, I mean, that the pennant race was kind of tightening up and it was a little bit, I don't know if it's panic factor, but there was a little bit of worry, I think sure. at the yeah. time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they were going to try to, they wanted a clear spot to bring up another pitcher in or something. They, they were, it was, it was, listen, August 24th, the Reds were um, six and a half up still in first place, but you know, 18 games over. Uh, so they had played one game under 500 since that high water mark in uh in the beginning of june so yeah i mean it was a little bit of a panic um and uh he was gone but then of course a couple of good things happened later that year ken uh you know he has a son that also played baseball uh craig craig griffey he and craig hit back-to-back home runs for the california or the uh, seattle manners against the california angels so we all remember where where we were that was a fun moment um, it may not have been Craig, but you'll have to look that up. I don't remember. You do your own it's one of those guys. There's a lot of kids in that family. Yeah. So I'm, we're not going to do all your research for you. You're, you're a valued listener to the podcast, but I'm not gonna do all your research. Um, but also uh, we learned later that King Griffey, after the season was over, the Reds voted him a full share of the playoff money and he got a ring. And so he, you know, he was a uh, part of three, probably the only guy part of three Reds championships, right? Yeah. Uh, that sounds right. Other, yeah. Other than Marty Brenneman um, and Joe Nuxall, I guess. All right. So another trade again, lots of key trades, August 31st. This would have been a uh, trade deadline deal. The Reds traded. Listen to this group, Butch Henry, Keith Kaiser, and Terry McGriff to the Astros for hometown boy, Bill Doran. That was a good that trade. One, that one I was really excited about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Doran was a good player. He was a good player. And, you know, that was when he was, it was the National League West. So we'd seen him a lot mm-hmm. over several years. But yeah, I mean, that really, you know, he'd, he'd, uh, hadn't been great the last couple of years before that, but still, you know, he was, he was having a good year that year. Oh, and he'd, he'd had some really good seasons. I mean, he was a legit, uh, you know, upper level, uh, maybe not a superstar, but a, a, a top level second baseman and uh you know came to the reds and and got 16 hits in his first 27 at bats would would you believe that bill doran was never an (laughs) all-star i would not believe that i really uh, that surprises me yeah that really how's it possible oh manny trio i guess was taking up those spots in the national league juan samuel yeah um yeah but he had a good career really good career and uh and ended up helping the reds uh although he got hurt before the playoffs and before the World Series, and the Reds had to put another guy on the roster. We'll talk about him in a moment. Yeah, how long? I mean, how many games did Doran actually play for the Reds? He uh, seventeen games. Seventeen games. But hit three seventy three, so that's maybe why we remember it so well. Yeah. Uh, where is this here? Sorry, he was he was worth point seven wins above replacement in seventeen games. Uh, uh, seventeen games. So that's pretty good. It's not bad. Thirty thirty two at that time, and so a good sort of utility guy. Um, fond memories of uh, Bill Dorn. Certainly more fond memories than I have of Keith Kaiser. And even Terry McGriff. And even 
Terry McGriff. Um, September 8th, Randy Myers struck out six straight batters. Uh, September 13th, Barry Larkin hit a two-run homer in the ninth inning to beat the Astros. And uh, here's my favorite note from this uh, Red Lake Journal book. September 18th, while on a promotional tour to plug his latest movie, Tom Selleck visits the Reds Riverfront Stadium <laughs> Clubhouse. <laughs> wow, Magnum P.I. That's exciting. Yeah. And was Chris Welsh was Chris Welsh and his mustache in attendance at that Ooh, at that game? Man, that would have been too much mustache for one stash game. Stash off. I don't oh, know if there's a, I don't think there's such a thing, but if there were, that'd be the day to do it. September 18, 1990. And September <laughs> 29th, the Reds lost 3 to 1 to the Padres. But the Dodgers lost was, to the Giants. Still fun. It was still fun because there was a big rain delay and the Dodgers lost. And so the Reds clinched the National League Western Division. And, uh, you know, I remember that uh, celebration. That was kind of fun, you know, with the, the tarp out. And I don't know, the Reds were, came out to celebrate. And I don't know. It was kind of a cool moment. Yeah, that was uh, a weeknight, right? It was. I think so. Yeah, September 29th. Yeah. Um, so then we get to the playoffs. Now, the 1990 playoffs, you know, uh, we're, I'm getting up there in age, but I'm not sure I remember a you know three-week period with more clarity than I remember, at least in terms of certain things, than I remember the, the Reds' playoff run. Just because every game, every pitch was so important, and I was, you know, hanging on the television for every single pitch, and it was just, just amazing. But now... Uh, the rest took on the Pirates in the National League Championship Series, and, and I I don't think the Reds were uh, favored in that series. I, I don't remember a lot of the talk, but I don't believe the Reds were favored, were they? I, it was probably close to being a toss-up, I think. Yeah. Because, right, uh, they, you know, the Pirates the Pirates had obviously a couple really great players and, and a couple good pitchers, and the Reds probably had a little bit better pitching overall, I would say. Yeah, I mean the Reds. That was kind of the story, I guess. The the, the Pirates had uh, Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonilla and uh, Andy Van Slyke. That's the 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 primary offensive weapons. Um, Doug Drabeck, I think, did Doug Drabeck win the Cy Young Award that year? I think he. I think he did. I think he did, and so they had him. They had former Red Ted Power. Ted Power, future Red John Smiley. Yeah, they had also acquired again Zane Smith. So. The Zane Smith Podcast Network. That's right. Subscribe on Apple uh, <laughs> Podcast or your podcast app of choice. That's right. Yikes. Um, so uh, the first game of that series, of course, the Reds lost 4-3. to three. Bob Walk, not a good name for a pitcher, but Bob Walk got the win in that game for the Pirates. And I remember thinking, oh, I mean, I distinctly remember thinking the Reds stumbled their way to the finish line. They lost game one. And we're in trouble. I mean, I really, I you know, I didn't give up because there's a long yep. way to go. But I was, I fully expected the Reds to lose the series. I mean, I just did. Did you have a similar? Well, I was worried. Um, so I, this is a really vivid time in my memory too, and it's a, it's a busy time, right? You know, because I'm a senior in high school. You, you and I graduated at the same time, right? I think so. Yes. Yeah. So we're just starting our senior year. It's the, the homecoming season at uh, at our high school so there's you know floats to be built and vanilla ice songs to to listen to and <laughs> and it's the you know the fall of 1990 is a glorious time there's also the uh the 
pending war in Iraq. If you remember, we do. I think it actually started earlier in the earlier in that year. Um, the the Desert must, Shield part, right? The oh, right. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, we must. I, that wasn't my senior year. Oh, okay. So uh, that would have been. Yeah, I, so I graduated ninety one. I graduated so ninety two. So I was at, oh, okay. Beginning right. of my junior year. So actually, I had I was actually on the baseball team my sophomore year. So I hadn't yet moved to tennis. <laughs> I lied to our, our viewers. Um, but you're right. It's a you know you, you're occupied by things. But this yeah. was also kind of the biggest thing in my world. Oh, at that it time. was yeah for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean you know the Reds hadn't been in the playoffs since I was six years old, and that was a quick exit to the to the. Uh, Pirates in '79. Yeah, that I didn't remember at all. I mean, I was around, but I was wasn't a base. I wasn't, you know, into baseball. Yeah, I, I remember the World Series, but the Reds were, you know, obviously not in that. But uh, so so we're up to game two, right? Yes, game two. So game two, um, you know, I was living south of Dayton, and that was Friday. Does that sound right? Uh, I can find really quickly here. It was a Friday, October fifth. Yeah, so that's a, yeah, so that's a Friday and start time three fifteen. Yep. So so we had no school that day either, and I don't know why our school kept having days off. But uh, what, what kind of a school system did you attend? Good school, good schools. <laughs> so uh, so here's the deal: the night before, um, they they announce that th- there are certain tickets that are were were the story was they were allotted to other national league teams and had been returned huh. to the reds so a certain number of tickets are being made available for friday afternoon's game at 10 a.m at the stadium 25 dollars a piece and so i'm talking to my uncle who's a few years older than me and he and his girlfriend at the time said hey we're going to go down if you want to come with us you're welcome to come with us come along Said, you know, why not? You know, worst case, we won't get tickets. We'll come back home and we'll be home by lunch. And then, anyway, we go down there and uh, we get our $25 tickets. And they're in the the ninth row right behind third base in the blue seats. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. Right right there. The blue seats, for those of you that weren't around uh, back in the olden days, those were field level. I mean, those are great seats. They were incredible seats. So... But now we've got what, uh, you know, it's like 10.05 when I get these tickets and we've got, uh, whatever, five hours to kill. 25 bucks. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. And, uh, so the the story, the story was the official story was that they were returned seats from other teams. The rumor was that Marge shot had purposely held back 2000 seats to sell at face value to, to screw over the scalpers. Well, see, now there, there's a good story about Marge. If, if <laughs> yeah, that were true, I guess. Well, it worked out for me. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, I'll, I'll make this story a little shorter. We, uh, we've got five hours to kill. I'm in Cincinnati. My uncle is like nine years older than me. So we start basically wandering around. It's kind of like a Ferris Bueller's Day Off day for me. I mean, I'm, you know, hanging out with adults, running around a big city, unsupervised more or less. Right. And, and that was when they had the... Uh, that was the same day that the Robert Maplethorpe trial was going on, the obscenity trial for yeah. the uh, the photographer. Mm-hmm. Sure. And and we wandered somehow wandered into the Contemporary Art Center, which is where the exhibit was oh. located. That was a big day for you. 
it was a big day, you know, and they're, they're kind of, it's kind of quiet there because they were all down at the courthouse, I guess. But, uh, you know, Wanda, I think, had some Skyline Chili. And then now uh, I think it's long enough that I can tell. Uh, I somehow found my way into Flanagan's Landing. All right. Yeah. Massive bar across the street from the stadium. Uh-huh. And stumbled my way into a couple buckets of uh, Miller Lights. Oh, wow. This was a big day for a high school. Big Chris. time. Big time. I thought I was about the biggest time there could be. I bet. I bet. And then yeah. the Reds won. Yeah. Yeah. We, we uh and that's the game with the uh, the greatest play of that game was the Paul O'Neill throw. Oh, man, that throw. Yeah, so this is what, uh, probably in the sixth inning, I think the Reds are up two to one. And uh, Bonds is, no, Van Slyke's on second. He's the tying run. Van Slyke, right. And there's nobody out. And there's somebody else is on first. I don't know who it would be. And uh, Bonds blasts one out in the left field. And this play is right in a line. Like O'Neill and the runner on second and me are kind of in a line. And I see O'Neill makes it, you know, times it up perfectly, lets that throw go. And I see Van Slyke coming. And I'm thinking, man, he's made a mistake because I think he's done for. And that ball just zips right past Van Slyke's ear. And, you know, and he's quoted as saying, oh, no, basically. He hears it. Right. And, uh, and, you know, Sabo drops the tag down, and it's a double play, and basically ends that rally right there. And it, you know, the place—I've never been in a stadium louder than that's than that Riverfront Stadium was uh, when Dibble pitched the eighth and Myers pitched the ninth to uh, to close that one out. I mean, that was absolutely insane. Yeah, I remember that throw because I wasn't uh, fortunate enough to be there. And my parents weren't serving me Miller Lights, <laughs> but uh, I remember dropping to my knees at, when that throw and just like, oh, I've never, you know, it was just, like, uh, just it was the biggest thing in my world. I just could not believe it. And uh, and of course, two one game, you know, Reds already lost a game at home, and so you know uh, that preserved the lead, and they go on to win two to one. Just uh, just glorious. That was an amazing. if you haven't seen that throw, go right now to uh, to YouTube or somewhere and look that up. Game two of the National League Championship Series, nineteen ninety. Uh, I'm looking now at the attendance that day. It's amazing that uh, they held, had some seats available because the attendance that day was 54,456. And capacity for Riverfront was just over 40,000, right? No, it was more than 40. Maybe that was the end when they took some seats. The end, out. yes. When they, when, they, when they knocked down left field, it was, it was 40, but it was, it was over 50. Oh, it was, uh, uh, yeah, it was 51,786 was capacity. So it was almost, a, it was over capacity, I guess, standing room only, but just barely over capacity yeah. at that time. You're right. Yeah, I forgot they took out those seats. Those it, it was rocking, though. There's a couple other plays. If you get a chance to see the play Larkin makes in the ninth inning is just, he made two, but there's one he come, went up the middle, another one Bonds hit, and just made a, you know, one of those great Barry Larkin plays on it. Yeah. So that was a Friday, and then the one-to-one series, go back to Pittsburgh, and, and you know, Reds are on a little bit of a high. But the Pirates figure they've stolen one at, uh, at Cincinnati, and so they're in, they're in control of this series. And then they don't play on Saturday or Sunday because CBS uh, had to keep its schedule clear for college and pro football games. That's rough. That's rough. So we get to game three of the series, and that's the first game in uh, in Pittsburgh. Danny Jackson's the starter for Cincinnati. Zane Smith for uh, Pittsburgh. And games two to two, 
in the fifth. Mariano Duncan hits a three-run home run. Reds end up uh, winning six to three, and gives them a two to one, uh, two to one lead. Dibble, Charlton, and Myers combined to strike out seven batters in three and two-thirds innings of shutout relief. So that was a classic uh, nasty boys game, I guess. Uh, get them to the, get them to almost to the sixth, and then uh, hand it over. And you know who pitched in game three, right, for the Pirates? Yo, the immortal, our favorite, Zane Smith. Uh, Randy Myers picked up the save, his second of the series. So. Then game four, so now, now the Reds have, are up two to one. They've taken a game in Pittsburgh, and they're kind of got, got the grasp uh, on the series a little bit, a little bit of an edge there. And they've sent Jose Rio out to the mound in game four. And again, it's a 2 2 tie in the fourth. And Paul O'Neill homers. Um, uh, no, Paul O'Neill homered first, and then Chris Sable broke the 2 2 tie with a two run homer in the seventh uh, to give the Reds a 5 3 win. So um, this was the game. We talked about O'Neill's throw, but do you remember the throw? Oh, man. This is one of my favorite baseball plays of all time. Oh, it, this one's the one you need to go watch the video of if you've not seen it. When Eric Davis throws out Bobby Bonilla, who was trying to stretch a double into a triple. And and the look on Bonilla's face when Eric Davis <laughs> or when uh, Chris Sable put the tag on him, he's like, no, that's – no, the ball, how – you know, it's like he couldn't <laughs> believe that it, was, it wasn't possible. And I think he had some quote to that effect later. Well, well, yeah. Well, what was great about it too is it was such it was such perfect like fundamental smart baseball. It was the athleticism and the like the genius put together. Because what happened is the ball that Bonilla hit like hit off the top of the wall and like Billy Hatcher basically like kind of fell down trying to catch it and the ball kicked straight back into the infield or towards the infield. Yeah, yeah. Like almost to the like the the second base side the the right field side of. Right uh, to right center almost, mm-hmm. and and Eric Davis just materialized there. Yeah, it was. Uh, why was he there? I, I think that's what he was saying. Why was he even there? Yeah, it, it was classic Eric Davis. You're right. Uh, incredible athleticism, but also really smart player. Um, man, that uh, I, I'm going to go watch that again tonight. I'd almost sure. forgotten about that. I'm going to watch that, and then I'm going to watch that relay throw that the devil, the Tampa Rays made last week. What are they? Wait a minute, are they still playing baseball? The season is still has not been canceled. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I did see that play. That was crazy. Um, so the Reds lost game five to the Pirates and then come back home uh, to Riverfront Stadium. 56,079 fans and win the National League pennant with a 2-1 to win over the Pirates. Um, so this is a game where uh, Paul O'Neill was hitting 471 in the National Championship Series, but Lou Pinnell lifted him for Luis Quinones. <laughs> who's going to feature later as well. Yeah, we'll talk about him in a moment. Um, but uh, Quinones got, got the single to drive in the go-ahead run. But my favorite play on that one, again, another defensive play, was the aforementioned Glenn Braggs. Remember that play when he went up and, and oh, robbed yeah. Carmelo Martinez run. of that home run? Uh, and that was late in the game. I think it was in the ninth. Um, and so that was, a, that, was a, that was a great play, secured the victory, and the Reds were going to the World Series. Now, the Reds made the World Series. At that point, what what were you thinking? Teenage well, Chris. I'm, I'm thinking this is awesome, but they got to play the athletics. Exactly. And that's what all my friends who were like, oh, come on, you know, um, at least the ones that weren't Reds fans already were like, come on, these are the, you know, is their third straight World Series. Uh, the Bash brothers, Conseco and McGuire, um, you know, you're going to get destroyed. The A's uh, during the regular season, 
you know, had won, uh, oh, how many games had they won in the regular season? I guess I need to look that up. I thought I had it here. Um, but the Reds, you know, it just, uh, no 103, one. 103, uh, there you go. And the Reds won wins. 91. So, um, really almost no one gave the Reds any chance whatsoever, did they? No, I mean, it was, it was no shot. Let's hope we don't embarrass ourselves. Yeah. Should mention that Randy Myers and Rob Dibble won the National League Championship Series MVP award, uh, co-MVPs, cementing uh, the Nasty Boys forever in Reds lore. So, okay, so let's uh, let's set this World Series. Now, you didn't have any uh, any wild uh, semi-adult uh, nights during that World Series that I don't know about, did you? Uh, not nearly as exciting as the, the trip to yeah. Cincinnati. So, um, 1990, World Series, Game 1's on October 16th. And it's in Cincinnati, and so the place, you know, the the the, the whole town is just nuts at this point. Everyone kind of knows that the Reds are heavy, heavily uh, favored to lose. I guess um, big time underdogs, and but you know it's a World Series back in Cincinnati for the first time in, in a long time, and so you know uh, first time since '76. So uh, it's a fun time, but we're all kind of. Maybe I'm speaking for two people uh, that I shouldn't be speaking for, but I know in my own mind, I was kind of like, oh, this is really cool, but yeah, probably not. You know, I mean, this is a, such a good team. Uh, you know, uh, Dave Stewart and Bob Welch led that uh, rotation. You had uh, Eckersley at the back of the pen. Um, you know, Eckersley's ERA that season was 0.61. I mean, uh, and we'll see him in game two, but... You know, the the top of the first, though, you know, Riho gets out. Ricky Henderson, superstar Ricky Henderson, Willie McGee, and Jose Canseco. So he gets him out on a strikeout, a ground out, and a strikeout. And we're like, okay, pretty cool. Uh, but still, I don't know, in, in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. This was a very exciting, but no expectations. Barry Larkin uh, flies out to lead off the uh, bottom half of the first to deep center field. I remember thinking, whoa, that's pretty Against Dave Stewart, who... Um, he didn't win the Cy. I think Bob Welch won the Cy Young that year, but Dave Stewart was the ace of that staff. Uh, Billy Hatcher drew a walk. Paul O'Neill struck out swinging, and then Eric Davis came to the plate. Can you just sort of tell us uh, your thoughts about that Eric Davis at bat? Well, you know, like you said, I mean, I, I felt like the Reds had really very, very little shot of winning that series. I mean, no shot at winning, honestly. Just let's try not to embarrass ourselves. And Davis came up, and was it the first pitch? It was the very first pitch, yes. Yeah, and he just hits an absolute laser home run. Line drive off Stewart, straight away center, just a little bit to left center. And immediately, immediately, I think myself and every other Reds fan thought, we can win this. These guys are mortal. They're human after all. I mean, it was, it was the only thing I could compare it to in this at, at the time, I didn't think about it before, but was Buster Douglas knocking out Mike Tyson, which was, you know, oh. February of that same year. Yeah. And, you know, you had this, this inhuman, unstoppable force and a, a, a patsy up against him and, you know, knocked him out. And that's really how that, that home run felt, at least to me. Yeah, I w I've often wondered how much of that is just in retrospect. We all say that, um, but I, I really do. I, f I feel like I remember anyway thinking, "Oh my goodness!" You know, that's the first time that I li literally thought they could actually win this. You know, uh, we got to play these games, 
And uh, and you wonder how much of that went through the Reds' uh, dugout as well. There's been some discussion of that, but I don't know. Uh, Eric Davis, our big guy, versus Dave Stewart, their big guy, and our guy won. And it's a two nothing lead, and then the Reds go on to win seven to nothing. And uh, Billy Hatcher three for three, two doubles, a single, and that walk we talked about, and that broke Oakland's ten game postseason winning streak. I mean, you know, they were the defending champs. I don't know. I I think that you can't really. I can't. I don't think you can overstate what that one swing meant to that team. And uh, man, I just uh, I love reliving it every chance I get. Um. Now, game two, this was the most fun game of the series, I guess, other than maybe the clinching game. Um, the Reds win game two in extra innings, five to four. And uh, I'm sure you uh, remember that game very well. Uh, that was a fun one. Yeah. Um, what's, what's, your, what's your favorite memory? There's so many of that game. There's a good chapter in the Big 50 about that the game, by the way. Um, you know, I guess I guess we uh, got to talk about uh, Billy Bates, who comes over in that trade. This is his last at bat for the Reds. He chops one off the home plate and and beats it out. Billy Bates, um, and then of course Chris Sabo gets a single, moves him to second, and then Joe Oliver drives him in. And I re- I'll never forget Joe Nuxall, uh with the call. You know, uh, he he had the and this one belongs to the Reds call in that game. Cause I was watching the game on TV and listening to the game on the radio at the same time. Cause I wanted to hear Marty and Joe smart. Yeah. Very, I'm, I'm very smart. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy Hatcher four for four. So that's seven consecutive uh, hits, uh, to start the world series. Um, yeah. but yeah, but, I mean, my, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just saying my, my favorite memory of that game is that giant roll of toilet paper flying <laughs> and almost hitting Billy Bates. <laughs> All right. As, as he scored the winning run. I, that's like the old, my most vivid memory of that game. <laughs> I also remember Tom Browning left. Oh, that's right. That's right. So that was that was much more of a deal on the radio than it was on TV. Yeah, yeah. Tom Br- and, and Tim McCarver did mention on television, but only after. Uh, Marty Brenneman was sitting there like, Tom, if you're listening, <laughs> Tom Browning, his wife went into labor. And he was, he was supposed to start game three, so he didn't figure he was going to pitch. And uh, they, the game goes to extra innings, and he just takes off and goes and doesn't tell anybody. He's, he goes to the to the hospital with his wife, um, and uh, so so they call up to the radio booth and say, "Hey, you got to tell Tom to come back." They couldn't find him. There's the days before cell phones, if you kids can remember that. And uh, so Marty Brenner says, "Hey, if we, we may need you to pitch," as it got into extra innings, and so ultimately they didn't. He was uh, happy that the Reds won five to four uh, in the tenth inning, but. Um, but that was that was a sort of a fun anecdote in retrospect to that game. Um, what I remember personally about that was it was you know it must have been a late night. I don't know how long that game how long that game went, but it was uh, it was on a Wednesday night, so school night. Um, game went three and a half hours, so it started at eight thirty p.m. So it was uh, after midnight, I guess, uh, at the very end of it. Um, and my parents had already gone to bed. Everybody in my house was in bed. And I was, you know, staying up to watch the the World Series. That's how big a Reds fan my dad was. I'm gonna have to call him on that. <laughs> he went to bed, just sacked out. <laughs> uh, tell me what happens in the morning. Yeah, I always thought he was a big Reds fan. Now, now I know better. Um, but I remember jumping around in the living room, trying to be as quiet as I could to not wake <laughs> everyone up. But so excited, the Cincinnati Reds were up two games to nothing, and it was just almost inconceivable to me. So I, I hope you had some people you were watching it with. 
Uh, no, I remember I, I had a had a like a thirteen inch TV in my bedroom so I could watch the hits uh, of the hits of the day, like Designing Women. <laughs> Designing Women, excellent. You're a big Delta Burke fan. Oh boy, loved her back from uh, from that football show on HBO. Everything. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I was up in my room watching that game at at whatever o'clock in the morning it was. Oh, there and, you go. So you didn't have my, my my problem. I was you know ten feet from my parents' bedroom. And trying to keep them from uh, from waking up, and I think I did, um, as far as I know. Oh, well, good. Yeah. So a couple of days later, game three, the game that most people don't remember, but uh, but you know, Tom, uh, Chris Abel had a couple of home runs. Reds win, I think, eight to three in that game, and so Reds are up three to nothing. And I, I didn't know what was real and what was not real in the world at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At that point, you know, you're up three nothing. I mean, and maybe if you're if you're 17, you feel this way. At that point, I, I'm like, this is over. The Reds are going to win this. Like, yeah. I wasn't even worried at that point. Yeah, when they came out and, uh, you know, really just took control of that game. If that had been a close game, maybe it would have been different. But it really wasn't. The Reds took control early. And, um, and There's like what? The one close game, right? Uh, well, there two, out of the first three. Out of the first three. That, uh, yeah, game two was the first was the one close game. Yeah, game three was just, there was nothing. The first games one and three were just kind of, wow, you know, we're we can play with these guys. And, and not only that, we're, we're beating them at their own game. So, so game four. And I, at that point, I still didn't expect the, the rest of sweep, but I didn't expect them to win. But man, that game is one that I feel like I can remember pitch for pitch. And maybe it's cause I've watched it uh, in, you know, in the, in the ensuing years. Cause I recorded it on my VCR. Do you know what a VCR Ooh, nice. is, Chris? Yeah. Uh, Betamax. Yeah. There you go. I used to watch it over and over because I was, again, I was a geek, but, um, should have probably been on a date, but instead I was watching, rewatching a, a baseball game on a video cassette player. Ugh. Okay, I'm gonna cry now. You want to talk about game four? Go for it. <laughs> All right. So seriously, it was you know um, the A's scored early, um, and then in the first inning there, uh, I think they scored in the first inning. The A's did, and then uh, the Reds had those two injuries in the first. Now you remember Billy Hatcher got hit by a pitch and he stayed in the game, but then came out of the game later. And then Eric Davis made that sliding. Uh, well, it wasn't a sliding catch. He dropped it and had to throw it back into the infield. Looked like a sliding catch, but lacerated his kidney. That, yeah, those, both those injuries, I mean, they were really a big deal, obviously. And, and, but at the time we didn't get it because Hatcher stayed in the game for a while, played a couple more innings and you think, Oh, well, you know, you don't think he's got a broken hand. And then with, uh, with Eric, obviously, like you, you don't look at a guy and say, "Well, he clearly lacerated his kidney on that play." Right, but he was in pain, down for a while. But yeah, yeah. But we didn't. And you know, he got hurt a lot. He ran into stuff all the time. Right. And got hurt all the time. So you kind of just figured, all right, Eric's shaking up, uh, tape up his ribs, and he'll be back at it uh, for Game Five if we have to. Yeah, uh, you know, at the time we didn't realize that we probably don't have Eric Davis and Billy Hatcher the rest of the series. If it goes any further, so things could have gotten precarious, even though the Reds were up three nothing. If they didn't win that game, uh, and they almost didn't, you know, uh, I guess uh, they were down one to nothing until the eighth inning, and then Larkin singled. Um, Herm Winningham placed that. Uh, it was a full count, and he laid down a bunt and got a single off. Uh, it was 0-2 count. It was an 0-2 count, not a full count. It was 0-2, and he laid down this bunt and beat it out. I remember him running down to first and clapping after he <laughs> got through first, and I was like, oh, my gosh, Herm Winningham, I love you. Um, and then uh, Paul O'Neill uh, 
bunted for a sacrifice. Oh, I forgot to mention a moment ago. I'm, we got to we got to circle back to game two. Um, when Billy Bates came up to pinch hit, what's your what's your memory of Billy Bates coming up to pinch hit in retrospect? I, I, even at, I think at the time I felt like this is a really long game and they must have used everybody already. In retro, I didn't know it at the time. It didn't even occur to me why are they hitting Billy Bates? I guess, but after watching that World Series video that they put out, you remember that thing? Yeah, yeah, Quinones. <laughs> yeah, and those old those old ladies. Where's Quinones? I don't know about this one, Lou. So anyway, <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to say where's Quinones. That's why I went back to game two. So back to game no, four. Well, that's it. Go ahead. No, that was the only reason. Yeah, that was the only reason. I just wanted to say yeah. where's Quinones. Um, <laughs> that, what? Well, I just want to wonder for a second if you've ever heard this or ever thought about it. What would they have done if if they had to play a game five and Larkin and and uh, Hatcher are both out? Davis and Hatcher, yeah, yeah. Davis and Hatcher are out. So, Winningham and and Braggs and and O'Neill are the outfield, but they got to add two guys to the roster. And I wonder how they even do that. Yeah, well, they're in Oakland, so they, yeah, they got to fly somebody out there. They don't have, and, and I don't, you know, who would, who would it be? I, uh, I remember Ken Griffey Senior was covering the the series for like the local TV station. They could yeah. have traded traded and formed back. <laughs> maybe they could have. Uh, I don't know, Rolando Rooms, maybe. Yeah, I bet you that's it. Actually, would have uh, would have maybe been there, and uh, I don't know. It's just interesting. <laughs> I don't know. I never thought about it, but yeah. it's just. Uh, yeah, they would have been in a serious quandary if those they had to go more than that four games. But uh, then, uh, spoiler, spoiler alert: uh, Glenn Braggs. Uh, see, uh, Paul O'Neill bunted for a sacrifice, but it was safe. There was a, an E one on Dave Stewart. Um, Glenn Braggs hit into a force out, and uh, Larkin scored. And then Hal Morris, who had a what a great rookie season that guy had. Um, and we've not mentioned Benzinger too much, but Hal Morris hit the sacrifice fly to give the uh, score Herm Winningham two to one lead. Jose Rijo is dealing. They finally uh, hands it off to uh, to Randy Myers, and then I'll never forget that Carney Lansford hitting pop up behind first base. Your guy Todd Benzinger becomes uh, you know enshrined in Reds lore <laughs> by grabbing yeah. that uh, pop fly behind first base, and and the Reds were actual world, world champions. That was amazing. Uh, I'm sure you remember that moment. You probably also remember the moment uh, a couple days later when uh, at Fountain Square, big uh, celebration. You were there, right? I was there. That's an, another day we didn't have school. I don't know why, <laughs> but I think that was probably would it have been the next Friday? Um, it was. Uh, let's see here. Um, the final game was on October the twentieth, and so that was on a Saturday. So that would Saturday have been night. So would it have been Monday? Okay. October 22nd, Monday. So you all weren't... What's going on in this school district? I don't know, but we uh, we did it. Um, I just, I'm just remembering that, that Marge had made basically no party for the Reds uh, after they won the series. So they had the champagne in the in the clubhouse, but they, they basically went back to the, the, the hotel. <laughs> right. Billy Hatcher had to go across the street to yeah. Carl's Jr., the hamburger joint. And bought some burgers. Yeah, 80 burgers. <laughs> For the world champs. Yeah, and, and Herm Winningham is like, I don't know what a team usually does, but I know they don't go to Carl's Jr. <laughs> what a, you know, and there, this is the moment where Marge shot, and it wasn't that particular thing, but where I, I was like, wait a minute, come on. Uh, when she, you know, Eric Davis wasn't at that 
October 22nd, no. a Fountain Square celebration because he had to fly back and, uh, you know, uh, he had lacerated his kidney. He was still in the hospital and they had to have a, you know, a special uh, flight back for him and Mark Shot wouldn't pay for it. Yeah, she said he makes $3 million a year. Let him book his own jets. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. This guy just lacerated his kidney in the interest of helping our team win the World Series. Yeah, it was a it was a bummer, and and that day was it was a lot of fun. So we we didn't have school, and a buddy of mine and I drove down there, and uh, there was you know it was fifteen thousand people they say were down there, but it was like drizzling rain the whole day, so it was kind of like you didn't really want to hang out and just party and celebrate as much as we just watched the the wet Reds go through their parade and hop on a Fountain Square, and I, I remember I remember Marty being up there with very big hair. <laughs> poofy hair poofy yeah so i remember that uh, was, we had we had some controversy in my home because could not get my parents to uh, take me up there uh it was about a three and a half hour drive from where we lived and i could not get them to take me up there for that and i was like <sighs> but then i thought well i'll go to the next one <laughs> yeah jokes on me there hasn't <laughs> hasn't been a next one chris well it was it was fine that oh that's the that's the what what the, the Inquirer called an exuberant Chris Sabo was, <laughs> that was uh, great. Oh gosh, uh, yeah, I don't remember exactly what he said. Something about we kick their ass in three straight or something. But <laughs> just remember him talking like really fast and yes. screaming, it kind was, of incoherent. It was amazing. It, it's, it's one of the best moments of my uh, life as a Reds fan. Was that Chris yeah. Sabo speech? Because he was kind of you know he was a backwards kid kind of quiet all the time, but he was just so exuberant. That That's a great one. Go watch that one as well. Um, all right. Any final thoughts about that 1990 team? Ah, it was just a, a great time in my life and uh, a, a great time to be a Reds fan. It was, it was, a, it was just a fantastic. And I hope we have something to compare it to it at some point soon, but uh, until then it's really, it's, it's the high point, the high water mark. And I was a teenager. So. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh,